this book began just uh, because I noticed uh, various things that um, seemed to me to be worth finding out more about, uh, beginning, as I think I said, with this idea that European history had had two starting points rather than one, that uh, it began for us, not with the ancients, but with something that came after the ancients and after uh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and that this had a considerable bearing on lots of ways, not just in, of thinking about history, but also thinking about um, uh, this other subject, which is to do with human freedom and human creativity. Hello listener and welcome to New Works in Intellectual History, a podcast that interviews intellectual historians about their recently published work. We are produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St. Andrews. I'm Emily Ebisher, your host for this episode. Please follow the Institute on Twitter at St. Andrews IRH. You can find lots of resources, interviews and much more at intellectualhistory.net where you can also find links to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Zonsche, whose book, After Kant, The Romans, the Germans and the Modern in the History of Political Thought, was published in July 23 by the Princeton University Press. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Michael Zonsche. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me. So as a, as a way of, of introduction, I thought we'd start off with the starting point of your book, uh, which is Kant. Could you um, explain why Kant is such an important turning point in the history of, of political thought? Well, it wasn't originally going to be called After Kant. Uh, that, that was uh, a title that um, I think um, arose very, very late in the day, long after I had written most of the book, and to some degree long after I had um, given the content of the book uh, a little bit of thought. I think it was originally going to be called After Rousseau, uh, because uh, to some degree, part of the object of the exercise and part of the point of the book is to highlight the uh, continuities between the thought of uh, Rousseau and Kant, and to highlight the um, common problem that uh, arose from thinking about uh, the thought of Rousseau and Kant, which is a problem about the relationship between history and morality, and the extent to which, uh, as Rousseau in particular uh, emphasized, and as Kant amplified in various ways on uh, this, this claim, humans have a kind of capacity for uh, changing uh, their circumstances and their environments and their um, uh, uh, social and political arrangements that turn out to generate as many problems as they appear to solve. Uh, Rousseau called this uh, capability uh, perfectibility or uh, uh, improvement or perfection or some such thing. And um, I wanted to try to uh, describe some of the ways in which people responded to the sense that there was something pretty disheartening and discouraging and possibly rather scary about uh, this way of thinking about the relationship between history and morality, that um, humans seem to have an ability 
uh, to create things, but the things that they create uh, turn out to be uh, as catastrophic as the problems that they're seeking to avoid. And it's that sort of two-sided relationship between morality and history that um, is what, to some degree, the book is about. Uh, it's also uh, about the degree to which, well, you shouldn't um, um, be all that confident that you will get what you wish for without any consequences uh, in, in a certain sort of sense. That, that's the initial ideas. And the initial idea, I think, does come from the way in which um, Kant, very unusually, uh, really liked Rousseau. Most people uh, who read Rousseau in uh, the period from the 1760s or uh, from the time of the publication of his Discourse on the Origin of Inequality in whenever it was, 1755, most people reacted very, very strongly against Rousseau. They thought there was something um, that uh, was either at the most slippery or at the worst sinister in the way in which Rousseau uh, described inequality and uh, its consequences. And they didn't quite, I think, get the sense of uh, what Rousseau was trying to do uh, in emphasizing the extent to which, uh, well, human interdependence is a big problem for humans. And Kant certainly got it. And he got it uh, and amplified on it and tried to think about it uh, possibly very much more analytically than Rousseau had done, because Rousseau was very eloquent and also very careful, I think, in his use of concepts. Uh, but uh, he, he wasn't Kant. And um, uh, to some degree, uh, what Kant was trying to do was to take the initial uh, set of concerns that Rousseau had presented and to uh, show that these were real problems that were real uh, subjects for investigation. So in that sort of sense, uh, it's after Kant is, is a kind of uh, slightly lazy title, but on the other hand, it's not all that easy to have something called after Rousseau and Kant, because uh, what does that mean? Um, so it turned into after Kant, because I think uh, people who read uh, this uh, essay that Kant published in uh, 1784, an idea of uh, universal history from a cosmopolitan standpoint, is a kind of uh, extrapolation from Rousseau's uh, historical and political thought, which raised a very, very alarming problem in the eyes of quite a large number of uh, Kant's readers, that in a certain kind of sense, uh, morality and history don't seem to be very compatible with one another, uh, because all the claims about the foundations of human arrangements and societies seem to be arbitrary and uh, contingent, so that the only possible uh, non-arbitrary and non-contingent claim about uh, morality and uh, human arrangements seems to be connected to the future. Uh, but if it is connected to the future, then, well, what about everybody who has to live in the present? How can you talk about these things when we are just flailing around uh, without any kind of uh, basis 
for the kinds of concerns or um, interests that we have. And that the only uh, people who will really enjoy all the benefits of uh, uh, justice and uh, uh, right human relationships will be the people living at the end of history. So in a certain kind of sense, it's a slightly different take from the more recent take uh, on the end of history that people now associate with the work of Francis Fukuyama, uh, that history is a gradual process of sort of drying out ideologically and coming to terms with the fact that the room for manoeuvre is relatively limited. Country just thought that the end of history um, was A, remote, and B, unfair of on everybody who had uh, lived before the end of history. So there's a problem, if, in other words, that I think uh, came out of Kant and a problem that went into uh, thinking about the relationship between history, morality and politics, which I tried to organise as the basis of the content of this book, which sort of revolves around the thought that um, if the starting point is arbitrary and contingent, then getting something non-arbitrary and non-contingent into human life is not all that obvious, not all that easy. Uh, and uh, there were many people writing and thinking in, in the main after Rousseau, uh, thinking that the world was um, European society, let's be a little bit more uh, specific, that uh, modern European arrangements were based on the wrong foundations. They were based on foundations that were not compatible with certain kinds of values that uh, people also have. And uh, that connects up with this claim uh, that people thought that Kant was making, that um, history essentially is a story for losers, uh, because the only winners will be the people who are uh, living at the end of history. So that's the kind of problem and the kind of uh, uh, set of issues that people were um, concerned with by the combination, I would say, of Rousseau and Kant. So it's a kind of Rousseau-Kant story rather than just a Kant story. Yeah. I think in your in your preface, um, you then say that through this politics becomes the real foundation of modern politics. And could you maybe expand on, on what that means, if politics is the basis of politics? Well, I was trying to, it probably is a bit too snappy and uh, a bit too uh, clever and facetious, uh, but uh, the, the, uh, the suggestion that I was trying to make um, was a kind of sceptical uh, suggestion that... Um, in the light of Kant's essay on an idea of universal history and the suggestion that starting points always take you in the wrong direction, that uh, starting with something determinate, whether it's uh, a state of nature or um, uh, some historical uh, set of arrangements, such as those that obtained among the Romans or the Greeks or elsewhere, will always retrospectively seem to be arbitrary and contingent. And so there has to be something that um, is beyond this arbitrary or contingent foundations. And the suggestion that I was trying to make in the light of uh, particularly Kant and then the people who took Kant uh, 
seriously was, uh, and that includes uh, people who took Rousseau seriously as well, um, was that something that is more open-ended, something that doesn't uh, uh, have quite the level of determinacy or quite the, the sort of content than um, uh, history might do, will supply a foundation. And the initial thought was, well, politics has no determinant content. Uh, anything can become political uh, in a way that, uh, well, not everything can become musical or uh, linguistic or economic or um, uh, some such rather more determinate um, uh, set of concerns. Politics um, has no content uh, that is specific to politics because politics is whatever it is that politics is, a matter of choices and power and uh, contingency and uh, improvisation and uh, the things that turn the law or government or bureaucracy or administration or morality into things that are much more open-ended. So the, the thought is that um, uh, the starting point, if one's thinking about any of these things, should be very much more sceptical than is usually the case uh, the, if it is supplied by history. And uh, to some degree, that's the kind of insight that I think um, Kant got from Rousseau and Rousseau's idea of both uh, human perfectibility and this rather strange and murky concept of a general will, uh, which, as you know, I'm sure, is a began as a kind of theological concept, so it has something to do with God rather than anything to do with humans. And all sorts of complicated problems, I think, begin when you start trying to apply theological concepts to um, human arrangements. And um, uh, part of the response to the move that Rousseau made was uh, a sceptical uh, response. And that's what this snappy and probably mis misguided formula about uh, the foundation of politics being uh, politics. In other words, it has something to do with freedom and that freedom has, just by definition, no determinate content of its own. I don't know whether that helps to clarify things. Uh, yes, it does. Thank you. So then you, your book, um, in a way, revolves around three big sets of, of debates between the ancients and the moderns, the classics and the romantics and the Romans and the Germans, kind of simplify mm -hmm. it very broadly. And, I mean, this is a obviously very co complex story but can you give us kind of an, an overview of what connects all of these um sets of arguments and how they're connected to the problems raised by Rousseau and Kant um by way of thinking about the relationship between time and morality and the degree to which um starting from any particular time and any particular period or any particular set of uh, arrangement gave rise, particularly in the light of, uh, of uh, Kant's essay to people's minds, um, to this big problem about uh, the fact that, well, human life goes uh, forward, but there are certain kinds of things that seem to be required to provide a foundation or a starting point or uh, an orientation for the direction of travel of uh, human history. And... Um, the book is about the um, various ways in which people uh, dealt with this problem, 
and try to think about the relationship between things that uh, necessarily change and things that are rather more durable. So one of the things that my book is also about, and uh, which is rather different from these antitheses between uh, the Romans and the Germans or the ancients and the moderns or um, uh, and so on, uh, are the things that last, uh, like, for example, uh, states, uh, for example, laws, and thirdly, uh, money. And uh, I was trying uh, to show that uh, in order to deal with um, this problem of the relationship between morality and history, uh, people began to think about something in between uh, the starting point and the end point by thinking about, well, what is it that makes these uh, things that seem to last, uh, irrespective to some degree of uh, time and arrangements and uh, local conditions, what make, gives them their qualities of durability and legitimacy? Where do they come from? How do they work? What do they do? And what does thinking about, in particular, states, laws, money, do to thinking about uh, history and morality? And so that's what, uh, in large measure, uh, the book is designed to, to be about. It's about how to think about these subjects that aren't explicitly political uh, because they have a content the law has a content money has a content uh, subjects to do with uh, uh, government and administration have a content and they sort of spill over from one generation to the next uh, they spill over from one set of arrangements to another and something about these subjects makes them possibly a little bit more tractable and a little bit less arbitrary and a little bit more um, susceptible to thinking constructively uh, than simply going for either the dogmatism, uh, which is associated with emphasizing these values and those origins and that set of arrangements on the one side, or the idea that, well, uh, once you no longer have those values, these origins or that set of arrangements, then, well, anything applies and anything is permissible and we have no moral compass uh, at all. The suggestion taken up by people who read and took Rousseau, Kant and uh, uh, the implications of their thoughts seriously is that, well, there's somewhere in between uh, and the somewhere in between in particular is a matter of thinking about what the law is, how it works, where it's come from, why it um, seems to be uh, applicable uh, and the same to do with things related to uh, money and the economy. So it's that sort of intermediate area that uh, uh, I was trying to investigate, if you like, by writing the various chapters about a large number of people who sort of saw the point of the problem and thought it was important to try and work out uh, ways of developing solutions. I, I hope that helps a little bit. Yes, and I guess that also kind of makes clearer the connection between, because it's a lot about how people think about history and morality, but that kind of makes the connection then to concrete political arrangements as well. And yes. um, I think one of the, so if we go a little bit chronologically through your, your book, you turn first the concept of, of palingenesis, um, mm -hmm. 
how that relates to Kant's concept of social unsociability. So could you maybe explain how those two are interdependent and why palingenesis was apparently such a an important concept, which now it, it kind of disappeared from our from our view yeah. nowadays. Yeah, I I came across this because I came across the work of this um, uh, early nineteenth century French writer called Pierre Simon Balanche, uh, who who published a book uh, called uh, Palingenesie Sociale, Social Palingenesis, uh, in about eighteen twenty five, eighteen thirty. I can't quite remember, and uh, I had also come across um, the uh, work of um, a French paper, <clears throat> sorry, uh, an early 19th century French uh, painter uh, who um, uh, has now largely disappeared from my memory and uh, disappeared from most other people's memories. But uh, can you remember his name? Um, uh, Paul Chenevard. Chenevard, yes. uh, Who painted the, the Pantheon. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, and... Um, I was very surprised. I don't know much that has been written about 1848, in which um, Chenevard's uh, project for uh, redecorating the the Pantheon in Paris uh, is mentioned. Uh, it is mentioned, of course, by art historians and people who write specifically about Chenevard. Uh, but uh, once upon a time, uh, and in, in 1848, it did seem to be the case that it was appropriate uh, to celebrate and commemorate uh, the events of 1848 as a huge process of social regeneration. Uh, and the name that was given to this process of social uh, regeneration was in part the, in the light of what Balanche and other people like Balanche had written, um, palingenesis. So the idea is that there's something about humanity and human history that means that, um, well, you can actually identify uh, a purpose and a pattern and uh, a goal of human history, and that we're all in some sort of way, uh, whether we know it or not, involved in uh, this comprehensive process. Balanche's idea was that uh, history is the medium uh, by which humanity discovers its identity, its capacity to recognize itself as humanity. And it does so by way of the cat catastrophic history that uh, human history is. The more we suffer, in a sense, Balanche is arguing, uh, the more human we're likely to be because we know that we have quite a lot to atone for, quite a lot to uh, regret, quite a lot to recognize in the misfortunes uh, that we have brought upon one another over the course of time. So history is a kind of huge process of um, what emotional and uh, cognitive uh, development in which people will become aware that uh, what applies here is neither uh, the beginning or the end of the story because the real beginning the end of the story is humanity as a whole and that's what history is and um, it's a process in other words in which uh, humanity becomes uh, human as as human as a single agent might become with the capacity for reflection uh, capacity for what hope remorse all those kinds of qualities that uh, apply to individuals that's the kind of claim that uh, um, 
informed Chenaval's uh, uh, project for redecorating the Pantheon in 1848. And part of the point of uh, using it was to compare it to um, what Kant has to say, because, of course, Kant was very much more of a skeptic and thought all this was tosh, uh, to put it um, uh, colloquially. And he was rather unimpressed by the way in which this notion of palingenesis had been used, particularly by his former uh, pupil and contemporary, uh, Herder, uh, in his ideas on the history of humanity and the degree to which um, the concept of palingenesis palingenesis, uh, was used as the basis of um, an enormous justification of human history. So, again, the idea is to set a certain kind of uh, set of beliefs, um, which was very widespread uh, in the what, first third, first half of the 19th century until, let's say, 1848, uh, not just in the German-speaking parts of Europe, but uh, in France as well. Uh, I wrote quite a lot about this um, this person by the name of Pierre Leroux somewhere in uh, this um, this book, and Leroux also uh, was very well disposed towards this idea that history is a process by which humanity makes itself. And uh, it's this idea which also has something to do with the big revival of interest in the thought of uh, uh, Jean-Baptiste Vico in both France and Germany in the 1820s and 1830s and goes into the thought of people like uh, Jules Michelet and uh, Edgar Quinet uh, so palingenesis, which looks like um, a, a kind of esoteric uh, early 19th century buzzword, was, I was trying to suggest, very much part of the, the what, if you like, the oppositional politics in many parts of Europe in uh, the first half of uh, the 19th century. And by describing it as sympathetically as I was trying to do, uh, the aim was also to try to suggest that there was quite a lot that has to be thought about to explain and uh, understand uh, Kant and people like Kant's scepticism towards this notion. Uh, because Kant was very clear that, uh, well, there isn't any such thing. Um, you can't find this kind of uh, pattern of development in, in human history. Instead, you have to think about the things that uh, humans create and uh, how they work and uh, what their consequences might be. In other words, you have to think more uh, analytically about politics and political institutions and the changes that take place, not just in politics, but uh, in legal and uh, social institutions and arrangements in a more straightforwardly historical way. Uh, that that um, was the point of making this comparison between palingenesis and, and Kant. It was designed to um, set the terms for thinking about um, this subject of social, unsocial sociability and the extent to which I think that it's a concept that has not been all that clearly used uh, in 
the history of political thought uh, and in Kant's studies, because it doesn't mean that people are nasty or behave badly or are, self, are necessarily self-centered. On the contrary, it means what it says it means. It's sociability, but it just happens to be local and partial and particular. Uh, it's not, uh, there isn't such a thing as sociability on a human scale, which was Rousseau's big uh, insight or big claim in the long argument that he had uh, with his friend and then enemy, uh, Denis Diderot, in the 1750s. Sociability, unfortunately, happens in a local and particular and limited sort of way. But because it does happen in a local and particular and limited sort of way, it gives rise to broader and more consequential problems. And that's why it's unsocial. It's not because it's unsocial to begin with, it's because it's sociable to begin with. And we love one another, but we love one another uh, in our local, particular and limited ways. That's the point. And that's the point that I think Kant got from Rousseau and uh, the point that uh, set Kant against uh, his many of his contemporaries, including uh, Herder, who argued, in a sense, that, well, sociability is just generically human. Sociability for Kant is not generically human. Sociability is just what some people happen to have at particular times and places. And there's a big, big difference between the two. And the one points towards something comprehensive, and the other points towards something limited and partial. And that's, to some degree, what the whole book is about, how to deal with this duality, which is built into thinking about human history. It's either humanity or it's bits and pieces of humanity, uh, or it's states or it's no states, uh, and so on and such forth. Um, so, um, yes, the, the subject of palingenesis and... Uh, the doubts about panangelesis is very, very important in the story that I was trying to tell in the book. Yes, so I was interested in that kind of state, no state question, because Kant did think about that, apparently, and his solution wasn't no state at all, if I understand correctly. So could you explain how Kant um, saw the solution to that problem? that you have to find ways of dealing with uh, this uh, sociability that um, is, because it's local and partial, uh, gives rise to um, tensions and conflicts uh, between the local and partial bits of humanity or between states. So the suggestion is that um, Kant is, um, again, contrary to some views of Kant, um, a theorist of uh, the balance of power and he's um, concerned very much with thinking about the relationships between states rather than um, trying to establish something above states or a super state or super state or what have you, but um, to find ways of thinking about how in a world made up of states, it might be possible uh, to find ways of uh, managing or limiting the possible damage that can arise uh, in a world made up of states. Because, again, the continuity from Rousseau is very strong. Um, states have needs of their own, and states have to survive. States need revenue, resources, uh, a capacity uh, to be states. 
which they don't have of themselves. They they rely on the industry and uh, the property and the resources of their members. So there is a kind of built-in problem once you have a world made up of states. And the question is then how to find ways of limiting uh, the consequences of sociability that is unsocial. And that's where um, the subjects of the law on the one side and money and uh, the various um, arrangements and institutions associated with money come into the picture. So part of my story was about um, the idea that um, there's a problem. And the interesting thing is how people began to think about a, what gave rise to the problem. It seems to have something to do with human creativity or what Rousseau calls perfectibility. How then to use this capacity that humans have for being creative to neutralize the effects of the problem, uh, to find ways of dealing with the unsociable consequences of sociability, uh, to find ways in short of using the law and money in particular and underlying or underpinning both the law and money states and governments in ways that will offset the effects of uh, unsocial sociability how in short to be creative about the damaging effects of human creativity because we know it all too well humans are creative and the consequences of creativity can be pretty awful um, and um, it runs all the way through human history uh, it's just possibly running a little bit more prominently uh, more recently than it might have done. But I don't think you can calibrate or measure these kinds of things. They're pretty horrible uh, one way or the other. And the interesting question is how to find creative solutions to the consequences of creativity. That's that's the sense that I had about uh, what uh, Kant and uh, people who took Kant uh, seriously um, were trying to do. Other people, of course, thought this was hopeless and misguided because it meant that the world was permanently divided, permanently um, at odds with its uh, component parts, and thought that there was a better way of dealing with things. So, and it would be... uh, no, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say it would be interesting to know how to situate somebody like Kassira in this kind of context, but that's yes, a different I... question. <laughs> yes, I mean, if we were on the, on the topic of Kassira, um, you make the point that if we, if we think about um, Kant in, in, in this way, it kind of throws a whole new light on, on the debate on Kassira and Heidegger have in, in Davos in, in 29, where, I mean, it, it, it's kind of debated whether it's a philosophical or political argument. And I was um, wondering what, what your take on, on that is and what that tells us about this much later debate that happens on, on Kant action. Well, this is, I used it simply to raise more of a question about what happened in between. Uh, here on the one side was uh, Rousseau and Kant and this um, set of problems that um, they raised about the relationship between morality and history and uh, freedom. And then in the 1920s, on the other side, there was this discussion between uh, Kassira and Heidegger, which looked as if uh, it's pretty much the same argument uh, in which somebody appears to be making some 
rather uh, strong claims about uh, history and morality uh, of uh, one kind or another. And uh, it looks as if nothing much had changed between uh, Rousseau and Kant and Cassirer and Heidegger, um, in which arguably uh, Cassirer inherited one type of claim about Kant, Heidegger inherited another slightly, well, substantially different type of claim about Kant and Neo-Kantism. And um, nothing in between, nothing in between the time of Rousseau and Kant uh, and uh, Cassirer and Heidegger seemed to have um, any presence in their discussion that I was able to identify. It seemed very much like a kind of uh, retake or remake of the arguments between uh, Herder and Kant uh, 120 or so years um, later. So the question really was, uh, is this actually the case? Uh, what happened in between? And uh, might it not be worth trying to find out uh, something of the uh, bits and pieces that had been forgotten uh, between the time of uh, uh, Herder and Kant and uh, Heidegger and Cassirer. So I wasn't trying to make a substantive point about uh, this Davos debate. I was simply using it as a kind of framing device uh, to suggest that um, it may be that there are some interesting things to be found out in the history of 19th century, uh, thinking about uh, the relationship between human society and human history that uh, has rather fallen out of the picture and that we're still sort of more likely than not to keep repeating the same arguments as it seemed to me that uh, Heidegger and Cassirer were repeating the same arguments without trying to find out a little bit more historically about what intellectually had been going on, what might have been forgotten, what it might be worth still thinking about. And in that respect, I was trying to suggest that um, thinking about the law and thinking about money and thinking about the kind of relationship between states and their governments that is compatible with uh, the idea of whatever a Rechtsstaat uh, on the one side and public finance, uh, public um, accountability, uh, an electoral system and party politics on the other side um, involved. So the idea was to say uh, between these, again, uh, two poles, um, there is something in between. Uh, and it's worth trying to think about the politics and um, the, if you like, the, the politics of bourgeois society in a slightly different way. Is there a specific reason that these kind of 19th century debates have been pushed out of our sight? Or... I don't know. Um, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't have any real confidence in producing a, an authoritative answer. So my glib and flip answer would be to say, well, it has a great deal to do with uh, unsocial sociability. You know, we belong to where we belong. We live with who we live. We um, inherit our values and make our choices in ways that are bounded by the arrangements that... Um, surround us to greater or lesser degrees. And so we live in a limited and partial set of um, circumstances and uh, environments, and uh, we forget. Uh, and um, 
it's very easy to forget, uh, particularly because uh, there is so much evidence that um, the local and the partial also gives rise to problems. Uh, you know, we've inherited uh, and continued to live with some pretty awful things that have happened uh, in history. So that's fine. Um, mm -hmm. So how do these debates about locality and, and universality um, come to particular in the general? How does that impact in the way people thought about culture? Because I think that you mentioned that a concept of, of culture it then becomes a solution also to the Rousseau-Kant problem. And I was wondering also why culture then seems, especially in Germany, to take on su such an important role, and if that is part of the reason, maybe. Yeah, again, uh, that's a little bit outside of uh, what I was trying to deal with. I, I'm aware of this um, different um, set of evaluations of culture on the one side and civilization on the other side, and the degree to which um, in the <clears throat> Early twentieth century, these these uh, these two terms uh, for Franco-German reasons and uh, reasons related to eighteen seventy one came to have uh, a very very sort of charged presence in intellectual life uh, in the early twentieth century. Uh, my my concern wasn't so much with that sort of opposition, but simply with the the opposition between the the local and particular on the one side and uh, the abstract and the general on the other, and the degree to which um, uh, it's um, difficult uh, to find ways of uh, integrating the two um, into um, an organized way of thinking, uh, because uh, they, on the one side, seem to be specific to particular times and places, and on the other side seem to, in some way or another, um, spill over from particular times and places to history as a whole. So the idea was to um, try to see um, some of the ways by which um, people had addressed this problem. And I, I found that um, it became a subject of considerable interest in uh, um, late 19th century Germany. Uh, uh, for reasons that um, had to do with um, looking back to the time of the French Revolution and thinking about um, some of the things that um, had been written by people like, in particular, Fichte, about um, history. And uh, um, as a result, I became interested in uh, the thought of somebody um, who Cassier wrote a little bit about called somebody named Emil Lask, uh, who who wrote a, a big thesis on Fichte's concept of history, and uh, used that as the way to um, see how these uh, the, these subjects were discussed and described. Yeah. So the culture was uh, connected to again this broader uh, problem of the relationship between. Uh, well, scepticism and teleology, if you like, and the degree to which um, uh, the sceptics um, had to address a more limited set of problems in order to find ways of um, offering something substantive 
as a counter to um, a rather more comprehensively teleological way of thinking about um, human history and uh, human improvement. So maybe one thing before um, coming maybe more about some methodological aspects, I was interested in kind of the way theology and religion then is impacted by that gulf that, that Kant opens up in a way. And I think you talk about the death of God, which is usually associated with Nietzsche, but um, you actually trace it um, to the work of... Jean-Paul. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could expand a bit on how you start thinking about God in, in relation to autonomy. Yeah. <clears throat> there was this widely discussed story or dream that uh, was described in the late 18th century in a novel by this person called uh, Jean-Paul uh, Richter, who was usually called Jean-Paul, as far as I know, which describes um, the idea of the death of God. The death of God, after all, is not uh, a novelty. Christ died on the cross. Uh, but the story was that, um, well, it was Christ who discovered that God was dead. And this was uh, Richter's um, dream. Uh, he set it out uh, as an episode in this novel. It was picked up and pulled out of the novel and translated into more or less every uh, major European language in the first quarter of the 19th century. French, Italian, uh, English as much as uh, circulated in, in German. And it um, was in its original uh, version, used as a kind of um, illustration of what thinking through the implications of Kant's thought would lead you to if everything was a matter of human freedom and everything was a matter of a range of entities that were beyond the human capacity to say anything determinate about them, then how could you possibly say something about God or morality or justice or all those kinds of things, you would end up um, with uh, what um, one of uh, Jean-Paul's contemporaries um, called nihilism. Nihilism was the word that was used to describe Kant's thought. It had no foundations, it was claimed. Uh, it had no goals or outcomes. And in this light, why bother with God? God was superfluous or redundant. And uh, uh, Richter used this uh, assessment of Kant's thought, which was made by one of his friends, I think, uh, a German, more uh, Christian philosopher, um, Heinrich Jacobi, uh, to, to highlight the point and to highlight the implications of Kant's thought. So the again, the implication was, this is horrible. Uh, we need to... Uh, remember that there is more to humanity than simply um, uh, this way of thinking about uh, the human capacity for both knowledge and understanding and morality, because there is also faith. And uh, faith will ultimately supply a way of thinking about um, history and morality, which will get you out of the um, implications of Kant's thought. Um, it's a very, very widely shared view in the early 19th century um, and was very much part of uh, thinking about uh, history and morality in some of the ways that I've 
I hope tried to describe uh, in summarizing some of the content of the, the, the book. And it goes into um, this rather now weird way of thinking about um, the division of labor uh, that uh, I encountered uh, in reading some of the work of uh, German theologian uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, uh, in which uh, the division of labor seemed to be a kind of counterpart to uh, the creation, creating something by way of uh, diversity, variety, creativity in a certain sort of sense, spread over the whole of humanity, would, in this way of thinking about uh, the division of labor, give rise to a kind of capacity for humanity to be, well, a single, unitary and self-determining person. A way of thinking about it that I suggested uh, uh, had some bearing on thinking about the concept of communism in the foot of Karl Marx, and certainly had some bearing in thinking about uh, the nature of history in some of Marx's um, less well-known contemporaries. I, I wrote a little bit about a now more or less forgotten Franco-Polish writer called August Ciskowski, who um, was rather captivated by this idea and um, um, wrote some rather um, energetic things uh, supporting this this idea. And it goes on, it goes on into thinking about history and morality into the late 19th, early 20th century, not uh, as an endorsement, but as a recognition of its importance in, in the work of uh, this very interesting late 19th, early 20th century German sociologist uh, uh, Zimmel, and uh, who's, I guess, a contemporary of uh, Kassira, and how uh, they they uh, thought about um, what the 19th century had left over, and thinking about it, and then you know it goes into a different way into uh, a differentiation theory and uh, all of that kind of um, way of thinking about um, uh, history. Um, I think you say that it's meant the book is meant to be a, a genealogy um, rather than a teleology. I was just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about the kind of methodological approach, how it can how it can provide an alternative to starting with ideology. I don't have a particularly strong view about uh, methodology. Um, I'm a historian, and uh, to that degree, I notice things that seem to me to be unusual or at odds with some of my uh, received ideas and wondered why they're there and uh, what, in the light of the fact that they are there, what significance they might have and how to identify this significance and explain what it might mean for thinking about uh, rather more familiar or well-known uh, subjects. So this book began just uh, because I noticed uh, various things that um, seemed to me to be worth finding out more about, uh, beginning, as I think I said at the beginning, with this idea that uh, European history had had two starting points rather than one, uh, that uh, it began uh, for us, not with the ancients, but with something that came after the ancients and after uh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And that this had a considerable bearing on lots of um, ways, not just in, of thinking about history, 
but also thinking about um, uh, this other subject, which is to do with human freedom and human creativity. So it, and I came across this not just randomly, I came across this, uh, as I said, in the work of one of the members of this group of people who came to be known as the Kope Circle, uh, book by um, uh, one of its members, uh, the political economist, um, uh, Sismondi, in um, both his uh, history of the, uh, what, the literature of the South and um, more broadly uh, in, in his work. And I, I just initially began by trying to uh, understand what Sismondi might have had in mind and why he'd acquired this idea. And this took me into thinking about um, or finding out about um, what romanticism was. And it turned out to be the case that romanticism was a kind of synthesis of something that certainly came out of the South and uh, the legacy of Rome and the Roman Empire, but also came out of uh, the conditions and circumstances that had followed the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and the invasions from the North. So when I say this is a genealogy, the idea is simply that this is a set of connections uh, which doesn't follow any kind of uh, pre-given logic. Uh, it just happens to have been uh, what came into uh, place for local contingent and historical reasons, because some people thought like this and other people thought that this was not the way to think at all, but needed to be corrected and revised. And so discussions took place, arguments arose, and uh, new ways of thinking and new concepts came into being uh, without there being any kind of predetermined set of origins or any kind of identifiable goal. Uh, in that sort of sense, it's meant to be a kind of uh, skeptical take on thinking about the relationship between history and morality and politics, in which there isn't a, a kind of end point and there isn't a kind of happy ending at all. Uh, the only ending is simply that, well, people have thought things and it's probably a good idea to think things than not to think things. And uh, that's as much as we can do, but it's still definitely worth trying to do. That's all. Well, thank you very much for the interview. It was great having you. And I hope well, the listeners you. will enjoy as well. Thank you very much.